0: This is it, folks. We've arrived at the final show of 2019. And as you can see, we are all dressed up and ready for something special.
1: That's right. It's time to look back at the most fascinating stories of the year.
2: We're calling it The Best of Taiwan Insider 2019. I'm Leslie Liao.
1: I'm Natalie So.
0: And I'm Andrew Ryan. Let's get this party started. Here in Taiwan, we love our superlatives. After all, we are a tiny dot on the map, so if we can say we're first at something, that's pretty exciting.
1: And we begin today with a story that made Taiwan first in Asia.
0: On May 17th, Taiwan became the first country in Asia to pass same-sex marriage. It went into effect one week later on May 24th. Supporters of same-sex marriage gather outside the legislature on Friday in the pouring rain. Organizers put the number at 40,000 people. They're waiting to see whether lawmakers inside will vote to legalize same-sex marriage in Taiwan. Opponents of same-sex marriage try to stop the bill with legislation of their own that would downgrade marriage to a civil union or even a familial relationship. They point out that more than 7 million people voted against same-sex marriage in a referendum last year. But by 3.30 p.m. on Friday, lawmakers legalized same-sex marriage 66 to 27, making Taiwan the first country in to do so. Outside, the crowd erupts in elation and tears. It's been a divisive two years since Taiwan's High Court said it was unconstitutional to prevent same-sex couples from having the right to marry, giving lawmakers a two-year deadline to pass legislation. Organizer Jennifer Liu says it's regrettable that the bill does not cover foreigners from countries where same-sex marriage is not yet legal, and it does not offer full adoption rights. But President Tsai Ing-wen lauds the landmark legislation, saying it's a proud day for Taiwan, offering equal legal protection for all types of relationships and ensuring the fair and equal treatment of all. All right, now after watching that video, I want you to respond in one word. Leslie, let's start with you. Here's my word for this video. All
3: right. All right. Now, I
2: wanted to choose something that was maybe like about time, but I think Matthew McConaughey said it best when he said, all right, all right, all right.
0: Nice.
1: All right. And my word is soft. I think it's a great example of Taiwan's soft power. We are one of the most open and democratic nations in Asia. It's no wonder we were first in Asia.
0: All right. Now we are going to go from first in Asia on to first in the world. Now, if
2: Taiwan is going to be first in the world at anything, I would rather it be for food or quality of people named Leslie... (laughs) And uh, we did find out we were in fact number one at something, but it's not for either of those things, not even close. We were number one in the world for Asian flush.
1: The Asian flush isn't just a physical response to drinking alcohol, it's an enzyme deficiency. People who lack the ALDH2 enzyme cannot metabolize alcohol. This results in flushed faces, respiratory problems, nausea, vomiting, and possibly diseases. Nearly half of the people in Taiwan have this deficiency.
0: Many Asians have this enzyme deficiency. They have a hard time metabolizing alcohol, so they often don't feel well after drinking.
1: People who lack the ALDH2 enzyme have a 50 times higher risk for mouth, throat, and esophageal cancers. A Stanford study found that Taiwan ranks top in the world for this enzyme deficiency. It advised these people to avoid alcohol altogether. According to the World Health Organization, in 2016, over 3 million people died from alcohol-related causes. 29% was related to drunk driving or violence. The rest were due to cancer and cardiovascular or other alcohol-induced diseases. Even low level consumers of alcohol were found to have a 1.26 times higher chance of getting cancer than those who don't drink at all. So it is a good idea to think before you drink, especially if you get the Asian flush.
2: All right, guys, so tell me what you think about that story.
1: Okay, in a word, sober. I think it was sobering, <laughs> and those people with Asian flush should stay sober.
0: All right, my words red, red face. You know, don't feel red-faced if you get red-faced when you drink. But actually, this is also a reference to me. I feel kind of red-faced talking about Asian plush, being the white guy in the room. (laughs) So I'll stop there.
2: (laughs) All All right. Now let's move on to our highest story of the year.
1: If you've ever been to the top of the Taipei 101, you probably went to the 89th floor.
0: I've been there.
1: I've been there, too. But this year, they began allowing people to go to the 101st floor, which is the highest outdoor observation deck in Asia.
2: Since Taiwan's highest skyscraper, Taipei 101's completion in 2004, over 2 million people have visited the lower observatory down on the 89th floor each year. Since it can only accommodate around 10,000 visitors a day, guests sometimes have to wait for up to half an hour before going up. But now visitors can bypass the queue and go even higher. Taipei 101 President Angela Chang says that starting on June 14th, guests will be allowed into the observatory at the peak of it all, the once-exclusive 101st floor in the highest outdoor observatory in Asia. There are a few caveats. Space is limited and at first only 36 people will be allowed up each day. Each visit will only last 40 minutes. Bookings must be made at least one day in advance. Once there, visitors have to put on safety gear to step out into the 460 meter high outdoor roof area. A visit up top is pricey too. While a ticket to the 89th floor only costs 600 new Taiwan dollars or around 19 US dollars, a ticket to the 101st floor is 3,000 new Taiwan dollars or 95 US dollars per person. That may seem like a lot, but for that price, you'll be granted access to a place that once only opened to the likes of former U.S. President Bill Clinton and Hollywood superstar Will Smith. What
1: would you guys think of that story? Well,
2: (laughs) (laughs) my reaction is, what? Because when you go to the top of Taipei 101 on the 89th floor, you think that's all the way up top. But then you remember, Taipei 101 means it has 101 floors. So what's between 91 and 101, you guys? (laughs) That's That's a great
0: question. (laughs) So, my uh, word is this is actually, uh, I feel like it was a missed opportunity. US $101, we told you it was uh, $95 to get to the top. I think they should make it $101.
1: That makes sense. (laughs) We now turn to one of the more somber stories of 2019.
0: Now, this next story captured our attention not just because it led to the destruction of a local landmark and the death of six people, but also because it was captured on film.
4: The Nanfang Ao Bridge in Yilan County, northeastern Taiwan, suddenly collapsed on Tuesday morning, crushing three fishing boats under its weight. An oil tanker on the bridge tumbled into the water and caught fire. The driver was lucky to survive the collapse, but those on the boats weren't so lucky five out of the six missing fishermen have been found dead. All of them were migrant workers from Indonesia and the Philippines.
0: All right, what'd you guys think after that video? Nali, you wanna go first?
1: Sure. Well, it's very disturbing to see a major landmark uh, collapse like that and kill people. And I hope they find out why that happened.
0: Mm, Leslie?
2: Uh, In the same vein. Speechless. I remember uh, waking up and seeing the footage and I was left absolutely speechless. Taiwan is very safe, but this is not something you'd really expect to happen here. So speechless is my
0: word to describe this
2: video.
5: Mm.
0: And hopefully we won't see that happen again in Taiwan. Now we're going to move on to another uh, award for best footage. And this is for the most striking footage from here in Taiwan that we featured in our show this year.
2: A Malaysian student studying in Taiwan traveled to Hohuan Huan Mountain over 150 times over the course of four years. Why? Because he wanted to give Taiwan the perfect gift before he left. His final product does not disappoint. This is the sunrise
1: at He Huan Mountain and the Dark Sky Park, all captured by Malaysian student Feng Yehui. While studying in Taiwan, Feng spent the past four years capturing Taiwan's most beautiful scenery through time-lapse photography.
4: Before I leave Taiwan, I wanted to give something to Taiwan. I hope these works don't just receive a lot of attention, but rather leave a lasting impression on the people of Taiwan.
1: Another beautiful sunrise, Feng captured above fields of Asian knotweed in Nanto County. This is an amazing shot of the indigenous Talampo village in Hualien and Taizong sea of cosmos flowers. I came across a weasel once.
4: I was the only one taking pictures at a peak of He Huan Mountain then, and he stole my dinner.
1: He climbed He Huan Mountain 150 times, carrying 20 kilograms of equipment to make time-lapse Taiwan, giving the people of Taiwan a stunning new look into their beautiful land.
2: All right, you guys want to share your words about that video? Natalie, would you like to go first? Yes,
1: one word, passion. Mm. I really admire his passion for Taiwan, for nature, and for photography.
0: Mm, That's a great word. Uh, My word is cherish. And um, that's because I think a lot of times, you know, those of us who live in Taiwan or are from Taiwan or have been here for a long time, we forget to cherish that's the true. scenery around us. That's so true. sometimes it takes an outsider's perspective to really cherish all that we have in our world.
2: All right. Thank you for those words, you guys. Moving on now to our most touching story of the year. <music>
1: was really touched by this video. It's a story of an eight-year-old boy who climbed Taiwan's highest mountain to fulfill a promise to his late mother. This eight-year-old boy is climbing Taiwan's tallest mountain, the nearly 4,000 meter Jade Mountain, all for the love of his late mother. They had planned to go up together one day, but she died last year, so he took her picture up with him. He believes mommy is in heaven, so he went up to be closer to her. He made it all the way to the peak and screamed, mommy, I carried you to the peak of Jade Mountain. He fulfilled his promise to his mom 591 days after she passed away.
0: I
6: took
2: her to Taiwan's
0: highest mountain.
2: You took mommy to see the highest mountain, right? The scenery.
1: He fought altitude sickness on the way and his father wanted to take him home but he was determined to make it to the top to be closer to his
2: mom. My son lost one love in his life so I hope that daddy can give him even more love.
1: He's hoping mommy will come see him more in his dreams now. What would you guys think of this story, Leslie?
2: All right. My word wow. is triumph because this boy had a personal triumph when he traversed that tall mountain. But I think this is also a triumph for everyone in Taiwan to remind us that we can really attain our goals if we have the right motivation and we stick to our promises. Great mm, word. That is great. What?
0: After I saw this, I couldn't speak. I was so touched, <gasps> so moved, like all the feels. Mm, That's what this represents. It's a
1: very memorable video and yeah. story. All right, well, let's turn our um, attention to something a little bit lighter. You can't beat a story about um, animals to cheer you up.
0: Now, I know everybody loves a cat video. Of
5: course. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and there were some great ones this year, but we, the judges, we agreed that there was one that was truly perfect.
2: This
1: is Yuan the Tuxedo cat. She's become a star addition at the Feng Qihu station in Alisan. She looks both ways before crossing the tracks. There she goes, straight into the train depot to check out the locomotives. Yuen has become the honorary station manager at the Feng Qihu station on the Alisan Forest Railway. Not only is she adorable, she also works hard. She does her rounds every day to make sure everything is okay. Hong Chi Hu Station Manager Wuhan Un says she behaves pretty much the same way I do. She's actually more serious about work than me because I have days off and she doesn't. She's here almost every day. Yuan Zai is actually a five-year-old mama cat whose owner lives in the neighborhood. She's been coming to the station for the past couple of months and people love her. She's very friendly and has been attracting visitors to the station. People love to play with her too. This is Little Jade from Kishi Station on Japan's Wakayama Electric Railway. She's passed away, but back in the day, she was a popular station attraction. Looks like Yuenzai may follow in her footsteps.
0: All right, what'd you guys think of this story, Natalie?
1: Okay, one word. Adorable. That cat is the most <laughs> adorable thing. I hope they dress it up and give it a little hat
6: and something. It needs a little hat. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you yes. like that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Leslie? All right, guys, it's not a word, but you've heard me say it a million times. I'm not even going to try to front. I-, <laughs> I love that cat. I said it during that episode, and I say it around the office all the time. I love it
0: Yeah, so he- much. He still is talking about that cat, I have to say that. All right, we're gonna move on now to one of our favorite internet-related stories that we featured this year in Hashtag Taiwan.
2: Every week during our regular show, in my segment, Hashtag Taiwan, I share with you what's going on in social media around Taiwan. Now, I give you my favorite post, and I call it the Leslie Liao Pick of the Week. Today, I'm going to share with you my Leslie Liao Pick of the Year. Now, when researching Hashtag Taiwan, we're usually confined to trends that are happening in Taiwan. However, for my Pick of the Year, I chose a global trend that caught on in Taiwan like wildfire.
1: What's the best way to celebrate Teacher's Day? Students at Touchen Junior High School have a brilliant idea. They move their desks and chairs to the hallway, and they create their own version of the Tetris Challenge, the latest social media craze to hit Taiwan. After lying on the floor, they turn around to say, Happy Teacher's Day.
2: All right, you guys want to tell me what you think about my pick of the year? Natalie, you want to go first?
1: You know what it is? It's all about a new perspective. Mm. We see the familiar things, like the kids, but sideways, right? And for us, we just did the same thing, but we lied on the floor. We never saw the studio from the floor, right? And put everything <laughs> around us in a different angle than we usually see it, and yeah. it was really cool.
0: Absolutely. You know, I was thinking of another internet trend called unboxing, but to me, it felt like
1: boxing
0: to put ourselves inside a the box
1: a certain space right yeah it's almost very like neatly
0: action figures right, like right, right. lego or something ready to be taken out and put to use i thought you were gonna throw <laughs>
2: fisticuffs at me for a second <laughs> no,
0: no 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 i wouldn't do that
2: thank you natalie and andrew and moving on to our final award best move of the year
1: Taiwanese gymnast Ding Hua Tian made history by creating a move that was named after her. She's the first gymnast from Taiwan with that distinction.
0: Watch
2: out 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Taiwan has a gymnastic star heading your way. Ding Hua Tian is only 17 years old, but she's the first female Taiwanese gymnast to qualify for the Olympics since 1968 in Mexico. Now she's coming armed with another superlative. She has a move named after her that makes her the first Taiwanese gymnast with that honor. The move is called the Dinghua Tian Split Leap to Ring Position with 180 degree turn, and this is what it looks like. Ding jumps into the air and does splits while turning mid-air. The International Gymnastics Federation has officially added the move to the Code of Points for women's gymnastics. The maneuver was assigned a difficulty of D on a scale from A to J, with J being the most difficult.
1: So what did you guys think of that
2: move, Leslie? Here's my word. (laughs) (laughs) I'll explain my thought process. She's only 17 years old. Wow. She's the first female gymnast to qualify for the Olympics in Taiwan in 51 years. Whoa. Whoa. She's the first Taiwanese gymnast to get a name moved after her. Yowza.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just to be clear, that is not the name of the move. That's not the name of the move. It's (laughs) the Duakian move. All right. In my words, I've broken a little bit of a rule here, but I don't care.
1: Wow. Chinese. That's
0: right. This is how we say good luck or go for it. (laughs) (laughs) And we do wish her well at the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. We're very proud of you.
1: Yes, we are. And she will be someone to watch next year. That wraps up the Best of Taiwan Insider 2019. Now, every award ceremony has acceptance speeches. Is there anyone you guys would like to thank?
2: <laughs> oh, I got plenty right here. Actually, <laughs> hang tight real quick. I would like to thank our director, Taco, assistant director, Ya and consulting producer, Emily Wu, video editor, Jessica, and technical director, Xu, and director, Kate, who were with us at the beginning.
0: That's All right, right, how about you, Andrew? Of course. Got my little uh, paper here. I'd like to thank the English service, especially our spiritual leader, Paula Chow, as well as John Van Triest, who is always on the radar. Shirley Lin and Jake Chen. Where in Taiwan is he? He's always at the end of our show. Also, I'd like to thank our family and my shampoo sponsor. My <laughs>
1: <professionalist>. <laughs> I want to thank makeup artist Tiffany Su, cameraman Zhang Qinglan, production supervisors Zhang Dun, Wen Duyen, Patty Lin, Carlson Wong, and our executive producer Lu Ping. My mom, dad, family, and especially you, the viewer.
0: That's right.
1: And we also do hope to hear from you let us know what you think of our show for taiwan insider i am natalie so
0: i'm leslie leo and i'm andrew ryan and be sure to tune in next week for our first show of the year we're calling it 10 great ideas for 2020. taiwan today with natalie so
1: Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today, I'm Natalie So. Today I speak with three international artists whose works have been on exhibit at the Little White House in New Taipei in an exhibit called The Great Islanders. I speak more in depth with them about what concepts and experiences have driven their creations and their lives as artists. I speak with Will Koops, who is half British and half Maltese living in London, Irene Pugliasi, who is from the Greek island of Corfu, and Freya Tweldy, who grew up in Saudi Arabia and now lives in London. Join us for our conversation. So Freya, I noticed in your works they are quite thought-provoking. Like you have a video of someone boxing and hitting themselves. And tell, tell me what what you're trying to express through these thought-provoking works of yours.
3: Uh, I, I don't necessarily think of them, you know... When I make them, I'm not that sort of like thinking they will be thought-provoking. I think the thinking behind it is, I work, I tend to use myself in my work, predominantly. Um, And I use me, I suppose, um, I find it easier when I use myself in my work, because it tends to question many things. Um, It has many layers, as as I was saying uh, in your previous show, that... uh, because of my background, uh, where I lived, and so on, I can use different layers of that p- part of myself in my work. The series of videos that I made recently, the one that I think we discussed, is there to to show how you shake certain things from yourself. You know, um, the identity issue, the the history and the memory, uh, the belongingness, and I suppose you can only do that by questioning yourself, by looking in rather than looking out. So, yes, so in that series of body of work, there is a, a, a person, a self, uh, wearing a morph suit. So there's, there's no necessarily an identity to that person, male, female, or race or whatever, or gender. And they are trying to do many things, and that is from boxing to oneself, uh, relentlessly, does that um, mean that inflicting self harm or being too critical of oneself? Or? I suppose it's uh, it's questioning. It's sort of like you know the repetitiveness, which is quite evident in my work, failing and then picking oneself up and moving forward. Because that's what life is all about if, at the end of the day, isn't it? But I think it's the questioning which is very important in a very autobiographical way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other is. Uh, walking on rollerblading, uh, but failing to walk on that. They all take take place in a very small room uh, that happened to be very dark. In a sense, I suppose Samuel Beckett, in his play, Waiting for Goddard, so basically waiting for something to become better tomorrow, but it never happens, really. So, yeah, as I was saying, it is dark, it is quite bleak. But I suppose this is what it questions, Hope, I suppose, that's the, 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 maybe the word to use, hope, because we all ultimately live in hope. If there's no hope, then there is nothing, really.
1: Uh, there was one video with someone having too many layers of clothes on, right? And then they take the layers
3: off. What is that supposed to convey? Well, I use clothing as a metaphor for skin, I suppose, for identity. You know, uh, we wear different garments to become one person. And I tend to use clothing as uh, as a sense of, like, you know, having many identities that we work around with. And I tend to wear and, and you know, uh, take off this, this this garment, so to speak, to to represent the different identity that one carries with them.
1: How's your art affected yourself personally? Is it been a way to
3: express and understand your own identity more? I think uh, the biggest gift uh, I have been given in life by my higher whatever being is to become an artist Uh, it allows you to reflect i suppose a privilege as well to have the indulgence to become an artist isn't it you know to to question to philosophize to discuss uh, to make um so does it give me the expression to uh, to to uh, understand myself better than others i suppose absolutely it does and is it hard to make a living as an artist? Because people
1: always think of the starving artist, you know? <laughs> a, I, mean, I, I think a lot of people would like to, to follow their passions and perhaps <clears throat> work as an artist, as a career, but it
3: seems that it might be a bit unstable or, I or difficult. if you really want to be rich, you don't become an artist. <laughs> <laughs>
1: sure. Are you able to manage, you know, um, surviving as an artist, as a career?
3: I'm very lucky I have a husband that's very understanding Mm. and um, as a mother of two as well uh, it's always interesting to make a living or to make artwork as well as become a very active mother but yes it seems to be working so far
1: well that's wonderful (laughs) sounds like a perfect (laughs) a perfect career for you as a mother um well um Irene Many of your works deal with social issues, right that you want to tackle. Exactly. Why have you decided to deal use this way of um, expressing yourself?
7: I think is due to many personal events, but also in the places I lived and things that happened in Greece and both in personal uh, aspect and cultural and social affected all my, my work and my identity as an artist and a person. So I think the best thing is to talk openly about these and not to hide them. Mm-hmm. And I really like to research and point out things that happened and speak about them openly and let the people know because many of them are hidden. For example, in 2016, I found in a desert military base and concentration camp that many from the Albanian war in Kosovo, many people were brought there and they were without identity until someone searched for them. So I want to make a public installation and point out what happened. So the severity of the subject and this what happened because it was 1997 and no one spoke freely about it. It was kind of a, tab- a social taboo, especially in this area. So I really like, through my work, to be able to speak and open, speak openly and throw light to these subjects.
1: So has there any been any backlash towards uh, your work because mm. you kind of confront
7: some very controversial or, or darker aspects of society? Backlash? I, I think it's not a backlash, but it's like they try. Not to address the elephant in the room, so it's like how they try not to talk about them, they try mm-hmm. to take it as art, and this is the most shocking thing about what I see. They take it as art, but they try to stay away and be more not that empathetic to the subject and try to see more about me as an artist why I do it and focus on the personal rather than the social, which is for me is not that is the way the work functions and mm-hmm. I see it also opposite the art opposite my art
1: so how has it been for you personally um, dealing with these very serious issues um, through art is it a is it therapeutic is it is it satisfying to to express your thoughts and, and convictions in this way
7: yeah for me uh it's definitely therapeutic because I also talk about my personal problems and trying to find and to show that to people that it's okay to talk about their problems. So for me, I think it's a voice that needs to be addressed not only with words and uh, words that might be hurting, but also with um, um, with images because images made a larger impact and stay. That's true. We're visual s- creatures, aren't we? Exactly. We hate to admit it, but...
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we like to think we're more intellectual, but yeah. I think
7: images... Im- images stays and subliminally, like, when you are going see it, but then it stays, and then you translate it as time goes by, so you mm-hmm. can come back, see it, again, with a different eye, or, like, remember it after something happens to you and come back to it. So I think images and sounds and videos and things that you see, but you're not understand at that point, hmm. you can come back.
1: That's afterwards. interesting. And so how is it for you um, being an artist um, for your career? Is, is it hard to make a living this way or has it been pretty... Well, it worked uh, out pretty well for you?
7: Uh, we're always taking other jobs, morning jobs, like morning artistic jobs. jobs also in freelance spaces and to make ends meet. But as long as I think you, you have your mind, you're an artist and this is your job. I really like to take it as a job and mm-hmm. this is my how I make ends meet. Mm-hmm. And I think we're a bit more... Privileged living in London and having a job as artist is not that, is not that starving artist prototype and archety- archetype. You can make a living as an artist rather than in Greece, you can't. It's, uh, if but, you are an artist, you are a starving artist. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot more need for it's art. Yes, yes. And people do take it as a job and they respect it as a job. Mm. Is it mostly commercial art that you do? or No, no, no. No, no it's um, mostly installation and multidisciplinary. And who hires you to do these things? As a project basis and in the morning I organize art projects and art dealerships so I can so they go to put in their homes, and this is how... It's mostly on organising art projects and and make art and make projects. Sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Steve.
1: You can be creative all day long, huh? <laughs> yeah, kind <of. laughs> And Will, um, tell me how y- you got interested in art, and I know you're working at a gallery as an assistant yeah, director it's kind as kind well.
6: Yeah, I had quite a quick journey into it. Um, went to university, studied fine art first at Edinburgh, and then straight into the Masters at Chelsea, which is where i met these two, and then have very luckily out of that um, now started working at a gallery as uh, my full-time job alongside being the art. So it's been quite a nice transition for me to take it from each step along the way, just starting out, getting more progressed with uh, my own artistic making, and now working on the gallery side and the curation, which is really interesting to me as well.
1: So what's the difference between being a curator and an artist?
6: (laughs) I think I have a slightly different approach. to Me making work, I don't tend to like the works to take themselves too seriously. It's more of um, an escape and a relaxed moment in the making. Hmm. Um, And I like the works to be quite joyful in their own way and mm-hmm. um, have a little moment in an exhibition where you can kind of breathe and have a look at them. When it then swaps over to the curation side, I kind of swap into serious mode mm-hmm. for me and it's it's finding the place for everything, working out how to connect the different themes and visual aspects and everything that go into one exhibition to then give out a message to the viewer that becomes cohesive and is what you're trying to get across.
1: So what kind of themes or works of art have been most popular at your gallery?
6: We're, we're a very painterly-based gallery, um, which is just due to mainly how the building is set up. So we've done all that. We've just launched a new painting prize this year, So we had a very international show of 26 artists from, I think, 13 different countries. It was very diverse in the type of painting that we had, so right through from abstract to figurative to photorealistic, everything. But worked really well as this sort of new conversation between people from so many different countries and areas. I think a lot of what we try to do there is promote a conversation through art, use it as a sort of different form of language, outside of uh, politics or anything else it's
1: it's a bit lighter too right yeah L- less threatening
6: yeah. <laughs> more, more, <comfortable>. more
1: subtle <laughs> yeah. not, not as very subtle but you can take it different ways yeah. and what is your impression of
3: um asian art
6: so far mm-hmm. very good i think um, overall
3: asian art yeah. is really thriving yeah, uh-huh. yeah it's uh, it's very much so well respected uh in in the west so yeah
6: and the demand yeah. is just getting bigger and bigger particularly seeing it in London as well.
1: What what's the appeal of it or the uh, yeah the draw?
6: Well I think so, so we had um we all studied on the masters together and we had quite a lot of asian artists on the course with us. Um and what was really interesting to see is that I think the art education here differs so it comes from a more it's more, more of an academic,
7: academic, and academic basis. Manner.
6: And you learn your skills and your techniques and stuff. Exactly. And then we've seen them come over to London and get the London swing on it, which is a bit more freestyle. Freestyle. Uh, um, yeah, And that kind of merging of a um, really informed and grounded academic application exactly. of art with Excellent. freedom to do kind of whatever produces some really interesting work.
7: Mm.
1: that's wonderful well um, we hope that you enjoy your stay here in Taiwan and uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing your insights and your lives as artists you make it sound very uh, attractive (laughs) (laughs) to be an artist thanks so much for being on our show
7: thank Thank you for for having having us thank you so much
1: I've been speaking with three artists visiting Taipei from London, Irene Pugliasi, who is from the Greek island of Corfu, Will Koops, who is half British and half Maltese, and Freya Tawaldi, who grew up in Saudi Arabia. Their works were on exhibit at the Little White House in Dan Sui, New Taipei, in the exhibition called The Great Islanders. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So.
0: the RTI time machine. Today's time traveler is
5: John Van Trieste. and the destination Taipei, the 1910s Taiwan has been known for a number of products over the years. In the 17th century it was deerskins. In the 19th century it was camphor and tea. But there's one local product that's equaled big business through almost all of Taiwan's recorded history. Sugar. And in an otherwise unremarkable Taipei neighborhood, you'll find a monument to the sugar business, the sugar factory cultural area. You'd be hard pressed to find a better retelling of this sweet piece of Taiwan's history than what you'll find inside here. This was once a sugar factory. And while today only three simple warehouses remain, The exhibit inside the main warehouse gives us a picture of the factory in its prime and shows us what came even earlier. Today, we're heading inside to explore the story of an industry that's touched every period of Taiwan's past. The story is told in a big loop that moves around the otherwise empty floor of its warehouse home. The paintings, old photographs and memorabilia in here pop out in the low lighting. It's hard to know where to begin because there's no exact date we can put on Sugar's start here. All we can be really sure of is that outsiders quickly realized its value. Big Sugar got its start in Taiwan after 1624. That year, the Dutch East India Company set up shop in the south of Taiwan, and Dutch merchants worked hard to make the area's sugar a hot commodity. They enticed Chinese sugarcane farmers to immigrate to their Taiwan colony and they introduced cattle to the island to help these farmers out. Production boomed, and Taiwanese sugar was soon sold abroad. 37 years later, the Dutch were expelled from Taiwan at the hands of the half-Chinese warlord Koxinga. At the time, it might have seemed like sugar would be tossed out with the rest of the Dutch legacy. Koxinga needed rice to feed his men, and that meant a drop in sugar production. But sugarcane put the cash in cash crop, During its brief existence, Coxinga's kingdom was able to produce more sugar than even the Dutch had. It seems to be a pattern that repeats over and over. There are all kinds of twists and turns in Taiwan's history, but after each one of them, sugar always seems to come out on top. That's what happened after the next big change, when Koksinga's family ran out of luck. Imperial China took over his private kingdom in 1683 and despite ups and downs, Taiwan sugar producers seem to do well. On one wall, there's a list of things that people back across the Taiwan Strait used to say about Taiwan. They've got money up to their ankles. Plant for one winter there, and you can eat for three. The way they're written here, they almost sound envious. When we check in again over a century later, things are still going well. For sugar workers, the 19th century was a time of prosperity, even as imperial China suffered. During this period, Western powers used force to open imperial ports to trade. And as they did so, Taiwanese sugar found new buyers in Europe, the US, and Australia. A British consular report of the period notes that workers making sugar in Taiwan were pulling in wages double or triple what their fellow workers across the Taiwan Strait could hope to earn. Even farm workers on a sugar plantation could afford imported European clothes. This wealth doesn't seem to have changed much about how sugar was made. Black and white photographs show that cattle-drawn grindstones were still being used to crush sugar. Taiwan's next colonizer would change that. In 1895, after a war with imperial China, Japan took possession of Taiwan. Sugar was an early priority, and work began to bring Taiwan sugar production into the industrial age. Among the new mechanized factories set up was the one we're standing in, founded in the 1910s by a new company, the Taipei Sugar Manufacturing Company. Its state-of-the-art machinery processed sugarcane from all over the Taipei area, sent in by rail, boat, and even ox cart. It was a bit of an outlier as far as sugar factories go, Most of the action in this business happened in the sunny, tropical south. Here in rainy, cool Taipei, this was Taiwan's northernmost sugar factory. But it thrived, even after another company bought it out. Not all was well in sugarland, though. As production sped up, Taiwan's latest generation of sugar farmers were ready to revolt. They could only sell to a small group of government-approved companies. And everything was done on the company's terms, including setting the asking price. These companies would weigh the sugar cane, and their measurements were also final. As one group of farmers from central Taiwan found out, the numbers that came out of these scales weren't always the most accurate. Suspecting the worst, these farmers got three local officials to stand on one of these scales. The combined weight of three grown men? 49 kilograms. The plight of the sugarcane farmer was put into song, with lyrics written on one wall here lamenting slave-like conditions. In 1925, farmer's anger erupted, sending more than 30 of them to jail and opening up the way for more labor unrest through the end of the 1920s. None of that dampened enthusiasm for sugar, though. 1935 was supposed to be a big year. Japan had ruled Taiwan for 40 years by this point, and a huge expo was set up to showcase the good sides of colonization. Sugar was a big part of this. It even got its own pavilion. Unfortunately, the photo here only shows the pavilion when it was empty. But records show that this was a happening place. Over the several weeks of the expo, 500,000 people showed up here just to enjoy a free cup of ice-cold Taiwan sugar water. But in 1935, the expo was just one place giving a rosy view of sugar's potential. The sugar of the East comes from Taiwan. That's the caption on a triumphant illustration done that year, showing Taiwanese sugar flowing to the rest of East Asia. It was a strange thing, though no one at the time could have known it. Just a few years down the road, war would bring Taiwan's sugar production to a new peak before sending it crashing through the floor. Fighting between Japan and China broke out in 1937. And as Japanese colonial subjects, workers in Taiwan's sugar industry were told that they would now use their sugar to serve the nation. Production surged. But then other countries got involved in the fighting as the war spread to Southeast Asia and the Pacific. It seems that some of Taiwan's sugar bosses assumed that Southeast Asia would soon be theirs, and they made arrangements to move on. Some even closed up their Taiwan factories altogether. Then hardship started hitting home. Sugar cane fields were given over to rice and sweet potatoes. And some factories where sugar had been processed were repurposed as chemical plants meant to help the war effort. This sugar factory shuttered in 1943. Sugar production wouldn't return here again. Yet, Taiwan's sugar industry carried on. Japan left Taiwan at the end of the war and handed it over to the Chinese nationalists. This new government set up its own Taiwan sugar company, and for a time during the 50s and 60s, the company turned sugar into one of Taiwan's chief exports. So what happened to the sugar industry? Why is Taiwanese sugar probably something you've never heard of? Given all the big changes it had pulled through, the answer is a bit anticlimactic. Changes in the market. Prices fell during the 1980s, and since 1991, something strange has happened. Taiwan has become a sugar importer. After the war, bits of the factory were knocked down or sold off as whatever was left over was put to new uses. In 1997, though, when plans to build a nursing home at the site were discussed, local residents protested. They wanted there to be a park here, and they wanted the remains of the old factory to be a part of it. The old warehouses are a focal point for the neighborhood. Early on, the place even changed its official name to Sugar Factory Neighborhood, a name it still has today. In the park today, you'll find a statue of a cattle-drawn grindstone in use, a replica of the train that once served the factory, and of course, a plot of land set aside for raising sugar cane. It's this neighborhood's piece of a Taiwanese story that once saw this island sweeten the whole world. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time. This is Taiwan Explained, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International.
0: One of the most divisive election issues in the United States and the UK is immigration. And it's not just those two countries, a wave of nationalism is spreading across the globe. But what about here in Taiwan? Actually things are a little bit different and we're going to give you some reasons for that in just a moment. But first, I want to talk a little bit about Taiwan's foreign-born population. In today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to give you a quick overview of Taiwan's foreign-born population. And you might be surprised to learn that the average foreigner in Taiwan does not look like this.
1: (laughs) Okay. All right, Andrew, we have 60 seconds on the clock. You Ready?
0: All right. Go. First of all, how many immigrants and foreigners and their descendants live in Taiwan? Right now about 1.7 million people out of about 24 million people. Now, the largest group of foreigners in Taiwan is migrant workers. Right now, there's about 716,000 of them, largely from Thailand, the Philippines, Vietnam, and especially from Indonesia. Like these fishermen I met in Jilong, they do jobs that are deemed to be dangerous, dirty, and difficult, like construction, manufacturing, and taking care of the elderly. Now, the migrant worker population is the most marginalized of all foreigners in Taiwan. The second largest group is the new immigrants. Right now, there's about 550,000. The vast majority are women who came by marriage, mostly from China, like these hairstylists I met in Xinju. And finally, are the new Taiwanese children of immigrants, um, about 500,000 of them, mostly with a Chinese or Vietnamese parent. About 5% are like Cai the Li on the left, whose mom is from Indonesia.
1: Nice job, Andrew.
0: Thanks, Natalie. I do have one more sentence. Okay. Right now, about 8% of newborn babies in Taiwan have one foreign parent or more.
1: Oh, that's great. All right. So thank you, Andrew. And that is our Taiwan Explained.